Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to Malachi chapter 2. That is the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me, and I stood stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction, and you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Be Be seated. Well, I want to turn, I want to begin in the book of Hebrews which tells us that Jesus Christ was our high priest. Now you know this section in Malachi that we're looking at, the the latter part of chapter 1 and also chapter 2, is addressing the priests and their their sins in, in Israel at the time of Malachi. And the book of Hebrews also talks about the priesthood, particularly how Jesus is our high priest. And as high priest, he made propitiation for our sins. Jesus, as our high priest, made propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Then also in Hebrews 3.1, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And in Hebrews 4, we read this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And so what we learn about Jesus in, in Hebrews is that he was a faithful, he was faithful to the priestly task. 
right? He was a faithful high priest. And that, that faithfulness came through his death and resurrection. And that death and resurrection brought us into the presence of God and there to remain forever with God in paradise. And that was what the priests were to do. They were to mediate the people's the people coming into the presence of God, that high priest entering into the Holy of Holies once a year as a representative of all the people. And here Jesus has passed through the heavens and has been faithful in that task. But remember what the priesthood had become as we began to look at Malachi a few weeks ago. The priest of Israel would not honor God as a father. They were presenting defiled sacrifices. They took the worst of the animals instead of the best. They took the blind animals instead of the perfect animals and offered them. They profaned the table of the Lord. They disdainfully sniffed. That's the words that are used there. They disdainfully sniffed at the Lord's holy sacrifices. And the priests, the Levites, who had once stood for God's holiness, while no other tribe would... We're now causing the people to reject God and reject His holiness. The ones who had once been faithful were now leading the people astray. They were leading the people of God into sin rather than away from it. Remember, after the people of Israel worshipped by means of the graven image. Remember way back in Exodus. When the people called, Moses was up on the mountain, right? And, and the people were like, well... He's been up there a long time. We don't know what's happened to him. Why don't you fashion for us an image that we can worship? Right? And so that golden calf is made by Aaron. And the Levites, the Levites come into the picture after that. Right? When Moses says, well, who's on the Lord's side? And the Levites are the one who pick up swords and begin slaying their brothers for going after those idols. Exodus 32, 1 says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. Which is exactly what God Almighty had said he would do for them. He would go before them. In fact, he was going before them in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. But they say, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We read this further on in Exodus 20, 32. It describes the events of the same day, later in that day. Now, when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had led them, let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Imagine it was rather intensely shouted. And all the sons of Levi, gathered together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord. For every man has been against his son, against his brother, in order that he, God, may bestow a blessing upon you today. Now we may think that that kind of action 
by the Levites was extreme. Was extreme. Was very extreme. Um, but the holiness of the Lord is also extreme. The holiness of the Lord is not something to trifle with. The punishment the Levites executed was a punishment from the hand of the Lord for treating His holiness with contempt. Right? And so, we turn now to Malachi and those priests, those Levites, those, those dis- descended from that tribe that had done that extreme work of purifying Israel are now leading the people into rebellion. The Levites, the priests. God says through the prophet Malachi, And now this commandment is for you, O priest. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name. That's the issue. To give honor to my name. Says the Lord of hosts, And I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Calvin says that the priests divested the people of God's fear. They divested the people of God's fear. They took God's fear out of the question. Think on that for a moment. I think it can be rightly said of the church today that she no longer teaches that there should be a fear of the Lord. Right? We have de- domesticated the Lord of armies. Right? He's now the Lord of pillows and ponies and unicorns. Right? We have softened God to the point where the fear of the Lord is actually understood to be a, an unchristian sort of posture today. If you, if you fear God, that means you couldn't possibly understand anything about the grace of God and forgiveness, is what's said. Right? So cheap grace reigns over the church today. You cannot speak of the fear of the Lord without being attacked for it being sort of an unchristian sort of approach to God. Don't you know that peace has been made between you and God? Yeah, that's why I fear Him. God made that peace. And God wants me to walk in holiness. And if I do not, if I do not, then there's punishment. Fear of the Lord is antithetical to cheap grace, which is grace that costs nothing. Remember that Jesus taught his own apostles the fear of God, right? And, and in Isaiah, Jesus is described as one who had gird himself, right, with the fear of the Lord. So he gave us the example of what it means to fear God. If anybody didn't need to fear God, right, it was Jesus. Why would he need to fear his father? But he did. And Jesus taught his apostles to fear God. He said, but I will warn you whom to fear. This is said to Christians. This is said to the apostles. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And what does the fear of God translate into in our everyday practice of faith? I mean, it's kind of abstract. If I say, fear the Lord, what does that mean for you? What does that mean? Is that an emotion? Right? Is that just something you feel? Is that something you have to think? Or, or what is it? Well, I think it boils down to an everyday practice of faith. And that everyday practice of faith is the pursuit of holiness. It's the pursuit of holiness. Right? If God is holy, we should be holy. If we are not holy, fear Fear, 
right? So many today simply think Christianity is merely the receiving of forgiveness. It's just receiving uh, easy forgiveness. But though it is that, it's more, right? It's more than that. We're called to fear God, and in fearing God, we will, as it says in 2 Corinthians 7, perfect holiness in the fear of Him. We'll perfect our holiness. And if our pastors are unwilling to preach that, to teach that, to, to especially show that, then we are like those priests during Malachi's time, stumbling blocks to the people. Teaching with partiality. Right? As Malachi said, the priests did not take it to heart to give honor to God's name. They didn't take it to heart to give honor. Is there honor today for God's name? Is there honor for God's name in our body? Is there honor for God's name in your house? In your household? Is there honor for God's name in your own heart? Is there a proper fear of Him? Notice also this. God has sent warning after warning to the priests and His people. At the end of verse 2, it says, The curses have come upon them because they have not taken those warnings to heart. How have you rejected God's warnings? Right? Has God warned you? How many sermons have you sat through? How many times have you been in church receiving the word of God preached? How many times have you sat down to read the scriptures? How many times have you heard it read to you and you don't receive its warnings? It's continually a fight for me. I know something applies to me, but I don't want to go through the work of repentance, right? It's like disciplining our children. It's so tiring because you have to go through the whole process, right? You can't just whack them and move on. You have to whack them and then talk to them. And they're numbskulls. They don't listen. And then you have to talk to them again. And then they get confused. And then they start crying. And you're like, no, I want you to stop crying before we finish discipline. And our repentance is like that too, isn't it? We know it, it begins a process. And so the warnings of Scripture come to us and we're like, I don't want to spend the next week working on that. God had sent warnings to the priests and his people. At the end of verse 2, the curses have come upon them because they have not taken heed to his warnings. And think about how many people have called you to faith or called you to obedience, but you've rejected them. That's the kindness of the Lord that's drawing you to repentance. Could it be that that was God's kindness, God's forbearance that's calling you to repentance? God tells, God tells them then in Malachi that his kindness will be turned to curses, and indeed it already has been. Right? They had been blocks of wood, hard as stones, unyielding to God's kindness. And notice that the text says, I will curse your blessings. What does that mean? How does he curse their blessings? Well, notice... Um, the priests, what did the priests do? One of the jobs of the priests was to pronounce blessings upon the people, right? That, that number six blessing, the Aaronic blessing was to be given by the priests. And they, th- those were to be blessings, but now with the priest's disobedience and disregard for the holiness of God, their pronouncements are sending curses on the people rather than blessings upon the people. Right? Their entire function was to be a blessing to the people and it's being turned on its head because they refused to honor God's name and their work would lead now to the people's cursing. 
Then verse 3. So intense in its description of God's curses. One who doesn't fear the Lord might be tempted to think that God is being cruel or going for effect when he, the, the prophet announces this curse. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your, your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces. The refuse of your feasts and you will be taken away with it. Refuse, vomit. He's going to spread the, the product of their reveling. The product of their, their bad celebration of God's feast, which had turned into riotous affairs. And they're going to be vomiting, and God is going to shame them by spreading their own refuse on their face. Note that God strikes them where it would have the most drastic effect. Their children and their sacrifices. Their, their home and their worship, right? The children who would likely have taken the godlessness of their parents to the next level if they were receiving that kind of instruction even from the priests, they were the ones who would receive God's rebuke. And the vomit, the refuse of their feasts, those sacrificial feasts that God hated and the priests despised as well, would be smeared on the faces of the people. And there's no more shameful punishment than having... The vomit of your partying smeared on your face. I mean, that, that is an action that has... It, it's, not, it's not punishment that... Um, it's, it's, it's punishment meant to bring shame. Purely shame. Right? That's what it does. Not only is it disgusting, but it's shameful, as it should be. The, this aspect of sin today is dying again, especially in the church. We simply feel very little shame about doing wrong. We, we feel very little shame. Our political leaders have made it very hard for us as a people to feel shame about anything, given the example that they've given to us. And as I've said before, I believe this is because we do not have a sense uh, that our sins are against a holy God. That our sins are against God alone who is holy, holy, holy. Right? We lose that sense. And so we constantly have to study theology, study the doctrine of God, so that we might feel shame for our sins. The loss of shame over our sins is indicative of our spiritual sickness and laziness today. Our own priests, our pastors, are in the business today of making sure no one feels shame for their sins. Sin is actively fought against as a negative. And I think this, this boils down again to a faulty doctrine of God. We simply have no concept that God is utterly holy. And because of that holiness, He hates your sin. He hates it. And if He has been so gracious to us through Jesus Christ, through His Son, to have all those hateful sins forgiven, we ought to feel shame when we disregard his household rules. Instead, people in the church are taught that the gospel means no consequences for sin. And that shame for sin means you haven't properly meditated on the grace, graciousness of God. And so the one exhortation you hear in the church today is, believe the gospel more. 
Believe the gospel more. Believe the gospel more. That's the only act of obedience that is ever exhorted in the church today. Believe the gospel more. But the scriptures say much more about obedience than that. Next, our passage speaks of the covenant God made with Levi. What was this covenant God is talking about? I think that it is a reference to God determining that that tribe would be the tribe of priests in his Israel. That tribe was selected to do the priestly functions in the temple. In fact, they were honored with that duty. Verses 5 and 6 speak to the character of that relationship between God and the priests. My covenant, it says, with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. And unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And he turned many back from iniquity. Now think for a moment. Think for a moment about the proper duties of the priests. They're listed there in those few verses. One, they revered God. They feared God. Two, they stood in awe of his name, right? And his name represents all of his glories, all of his attributes in one compact word, right? So they, they stood in awe of all of his greatness. Three, the true instruction was in their mouths. They taught truth. Fourth, he walked with God in peace and uprightness, personal holiness, walking with God, walk pursuing him. And then... Fifth, he turned others from their sin, right? Through warning, through the reminders of the confessions of sin and through the sacrifices, he turned others from sin. That, dear brothers and sisters, is what the prophet was to do. Honor God before the people, instruct the people, and turn people from their sins. Instead, those priests were cursing the people, leading them to dishonor God by their example and refusing to instruct the people just in a nutshell, leading the people into sin. Again, that last duty to turn people from their sin. Would that we had pastors and elders who deeply understood this. The goal of our preaching should be what? Repentance. The goal of our preaching is repentance. It is repentance. And that is not to disregard the grace of God. The grace of God is rich and true and wide and wonderful. But the goal of our preaching is is, Psalm 130, right? There's forgiveness with the Lord that he might be feared. And so out of the grace of God comes this exhortation to live to him. And so the goal of our preaching should be repentance. Instead, many pastors peddle in false assurance. I don't want anybody in this church to be falsely assured. I'd rather aim for repentance than sell you lies, right? Giving hope where there is no repentance, that's what false assurance is. Giving hope where there's no repentance. And verse 7, For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priest is the messenger of God. In other words, the priests were to be teachers, but they refused to learn and then refused to teach. Calvin says, it is a monstrous thing when anyone boasts himself to be a priest when he's not a teacher. Right? It's like a pastor who writes books but neglects his church. 
Or it's like a father who boasts that he has eight kids but does nothing to educate them. Right? You claim the office, but then you forsake everything you're supposed to do in the office. That's what Calvin says this verse is saying. Finally, the prophet makes his condemnation of the priest explicit. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people. Just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. Now, please note that last phrase. The priests were showing partiality in their instruction. Calvin notes the priests no doubt flattered the people and thus attempted to deprive the prophets, not the priests, the prophets. Get those distinctions in your mind. Calvin says the priests no doubt flattered the people and thus attempted to deprive the prophets of every respect in order that their doctrine might produce no effect. And so the priests are there. They're the professional pastors and they're... They're flattering the people and selling them lies. And along comes Malachi the prophet. And he has to work against everything the priests have been saying. The prophet comes in. And then the prophet is no longer welcome. Because the priests have been flattering the people. And who doesn't want to be flattered? The priests were cherry picking the law, teaching only what the people wanted to hear. And so the people were beginning to hate the rebukes of the prophets who were sent to correct both the priests and the people. The priests were setting themselves against the prophets. The religious professionals tickled ears while the prophets were despised. There was a, a friend of mine who, who was in a church that was getting upset with his ministry and then the, the presbytery got involved and the, um, the head of the, the committee looking into things came down, it boiled all down to this question, can a pastor be a prophet? Can a pastor be a prophet? And he said, I don't think a pastor can be a prophet. And I say, I don't know how a pastor can't be a prophet. Pastor has to come in and rebuke and strengthen and minister in that way. And yet here, here is uh, a man in a presbytery who's saying that the, there's a different, who's sort of, he's, he's lobbying for the priest's position in this passage rather than the prophet's position in this passage. Now I could, at this point, I could continue to work out this analogy between priests and pastors. There's so much that could be said about that, about teaching, about authority, about the fear of the Lord. But I have to say, but, but I've said some things up to this point. Here's how I want to conclude. By returning to what I began with, we have a faithful high priest. We have a faithful high priest over us, Jesus Christ, who is prophet, priest, and king, rules over us without any kind of duplicity, without any kind of wavering. In him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. He's the kind of mediator that the priests of Israel were intended to be, but could not be because of their sins and sinfulness. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests 
to offer up sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. Who are weak. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Right? So those priests were weak. What, what, what we learn from the law is that it could not atone for sins. What we learn from the law is the blood of bulls and goats is not enough. And then we also learn that the priests are just defiled. They had to cleanse themselves first before they offered anything for the people. And so the weakness, the weakness of the priests is done away with in Jesus Christ. We no longer offer sacrifices continually both for the priest and for ourselves, Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law and he now as priest intercedes for us. He's not a screw up. He's not a sinner. Do we properly appreciate the priestly work of Jesus Christ? Do we have more appreciation thinking about how the work of the priests of Israel was continually being corrupted by sin? Jesus Christ... The Son of God did not sin. He did not teach anything but truth. He perfectly exemplified the fear of the Lord. He inaugurated a new way to God through his flesh. And, and, your sins have been properly atoned for through the work of Jesus Christ. The substance has done away with the shadows. You have a perfect high priest who is faithful. Follow him as your example. Receive teaching from his mouth. Repent for your sins as you are taught by him. He now is your high priest. And he is perfect. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we have a high priest that is seated to your right hand, always interceding for us. Father, we thank you that that he once for all atoned for our sins and has brought us near to the Father. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit that he and the Father gave to us. And we pray that as we contemplate his priesthood and we contemplate his sacrifice and we contemplate his holiness that we would walk in a manner worthy of him. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen.